The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. My guest today, again, is Ashwell Glasson. And we're going to discuss the groundbreaking headline global news that South Africa has legalized the trade in rhino horn and what that means. We're going to try and take this apart a little bit and understand the effects that this will have. Welcome, Ashwell. Fantastic. Thanks. It's been uh, quite a last three days. We're looking at the legislation, the Constitutional Court's review, which in itself is presented, um, I wouldn't say a definitive stance. What they've said is that a challenge to rhino horn trade is not up to being challenged. So, which really means that the National Department that looks after rhino horn trade is not actually up to speed. So we have a little trouble in looking at what that means. It, it means that our minister in Malewa has not provided a really good response to Rana Hall trade and the counter to it. This week's been pretty seminal on a whole lot of levels. So I've been reading on it, and I can imagine South Africa is up in arms on both sides, you know, the, the rhino breeders and their win, and Malewa, and then the private breeders like Lorinda Hearn and those folks who are not interested in trade. I read one article that Hume's uh, cashed rhino horn value is somewhere around $45 million. Yep, that makes kind of sense. I think if we really get into it, the decision around rhino horn trade domestically is about clearing the cash. Right. So, yeah, we've got, since the 1990s, residual, if you want to use that term, and remember I'm saying residual, rhino horn sitting in caches, locked up in safes, and they're not all in the same safe. There are multiple safes across the country, sitting with tons of rhino horn where 
the various owners or chaps want to recoup their costs. So are these, in, the, are these in government safes from, let's say, natural causes? No, or are they both. all in private hands? Both. Okay. They're in government safes and they're in private safes. So there are the likes of um, Manuletti and... Um, Timbavati and the Krug itself, that are now viable um, trading options. You know, so, an, uh, help me understand yeah. some of the parameters about the regulations. What I read was two horns per person via a permitting process. So, this puts a whole lot of spotlight on what that permitting process is going to be, right? Yep. So the permitting process is really about the province in which those um, horns are located and then how they are able to be exported. So if it's in Mpumalanga, one person who applies per year, let's say, can apply for a maximum of two. So what we're really talking about is the law of max and minimum. What's the maximum I can take out as a person in South Africa is two, right? A horn of a varying weight range, which is the other key issue, is they can take out two horns versus two minimal size horns so with that statement is there also a parameter on maximum minimum weight no right now as we understand it it's uh two horns of a maximum weight whatever that weight may be which has not been determined by um a government authority so yeah Unfortunately, it gives the uh, more criminal elements a choice or chance to say, well, we got these ones at a certain weight and then we shaved them down and they were at a certain shaved weight, which is what the secondary regulations that uh, Honorable Mr. Malewa also issued. She tried to say... You can't just shave um, rhino horns to this degree. So in her defense, I have to say, she's trying to kind of point out the obvious, that you can't just dilute rhino horn with other things. Okay, so there's some something in place to say that it has to be pure, that it has to be not jerry-rigged, so to speak, to be shaved and then exported to meat x parameter of weight and then there's the point of export so you can export within south africa but then there's the cites ban that you cannot export outside of south africa unless it's via from what i understand a hunt and and the horn becomes a trophy yes what the minister said though is that the export um, perspective is based on a personal, which um, 
a lot of people don't know, even in CITES, there is a personal um, export limit. So she's played very well, I have to say. And I'll probably get shot for saying this and get arrested somewhere. But she has basically played that card, saying, no, 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 wait a minute. If you shoot two rhino and you get two horns, you can still export them as personal purposes, for personal purposes. So that still allows you to escape the overall CITES um, ban. So it's, it's, it's a very, very clever sidestep. So what regulations or steps has she put in to, let's say, regulate or try to at least address the poaching crisis, killing rhino for their horn? Because a lot of what we know and understand is the, the point of the horn is for whether it's an old-time or new traditional use in Asia, that it's about the, the chi of the rhino horn. And then there's been comments about, you know, wet rhino, and that's why they cut off half the face so that people know that it's from freshly killed rhino versus a cached or dried horn. So how has she addressed the poaching crisis? Now we're going to have all this rhino horn, and is there a limit of how many people can apply for a permit to export two rhino horn? That's uh, the test limit. I think they have to still put in the permit system, which will require the CITES format, uh, which will say export, import, transit countries, the usual, which we expect from CITES, number one. Number two, um, overall, there will be a significant supply of rhino horn Uh, Well, at least chips or slices of horn um, to meet the demand. But the tricky-dicky bit for all of them is that they still have to land the rhino horn export permit requirements, which is what this week's case um, has kind of determined that domestic rhino horn trade is possible But government has to implement the regulatory or licensing system. So we are all waiting to say, okay, you said yes, but what does yes mean? It's like saying to the rest of us, yes, we're going to get taxed for this. uh, But you need to tell us what that portion is. And the tax authorities need to step and say, that's what it looks like, how it works, and that. So we're still waiting for the regime of uh, rhino horn permitting to be put into place, essentially. So do you think in the meantime, until this gets sorted out, that poaching will increase just to get what can be gotten in terms of live rhino kills and this regulation is sorted out? Well, 
we all know, oh, well, maybe we don't, that um, tracking a commodity's increase has a black market response. So the black market will push to either maintain or sustain or increase its presence. So of those three options, of course, the rhino horn guys who are poaching will increase it because they can certainly see, well, wait a minute, the legislative system's in a bit of flux, but our demand is still there. So we're going to keep pushing it and we'll keep supplying it. So I absolutely believe and will stand by saying, well, of course, the syndicates will keep pushing their balance because they know the value won't change in the short term. And they can withstand a price war. Exactly. Because as Alejandro Nadal, the economist, had said, you know, they're not single commodity markets. They can push other things while this gets sorted out. And meanwhile, there's a lot of rhino, especially on private farms or now it kind of opens up the possibility of theft, of breaking into these warehouses. Exactly. And Alejandro has got an amazing insight. Is He understands the dynamic of multi-product syndicates. So whether it's cocaine, heroin, morphine, rhino horn, pangolin scales, or leopard skins, lion bones or uh, bear claws, sun bear, cl- sun bear claws, or etc. There are leverageable opportunities for them to maximize their profit opportunities. So, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt they're ahead of the game. The rest of us, Interpol, environmental Interpol, are still single species oriented, which is Part of the challenge, I suppose, but the rest of us are saying, no, let's try and stop rhino horn poachers in their tracks. Uh, And yes, we do. So we shoot, kill, maim them, but it's not really um, slowing down the overall thing. But now we've got a gray area in terms of what you just said. Because it's legal. So how do you address rhino poaching for horn when you've got a legal trade? Does that water down the law at all? I'm not a law expert, but I suspect the provincial, well, in South Africa anyway, the provincial uh, um, statutes will hold in terms of trade requirements. That there is a big difference between industrial, like we spoke, you and I in our last chat, between industrial farming and being poached in an individual reserve environment. And I think uh, the likes of, I'm going to say it now, I'll probably get sued for saying it, but John Hume and co. will say their thing about having 2,000 plus rhino, etc., where they are um, really moving horn off and hoping to trade 
whilst others are not operating their businesses in the same way. Like I mentioned before, there are tons of big five reserves, the big five reserves, because their guests, photographic safari guests, want to experience seeing the big five. So there's a massive difference between industrial and photographic safaris. Right. Well, let's take a little break here and um, we'll come back. So stick with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Ashwell Glasson. And we're talking about the uh, global headlines right now of uh, opening up rhino horn trade in South Africa. So, Ashwell, at the last uh, of the last section, you mentioned one of the largest private breeders in South Africa. So he's got quite a value in cash, C-A-C-H-E to turn into cash so at two horns at a time and we don't know or do we know is there a maximum limit of per month or per quarter or per year how many rhino horn can go out and how many people can apply for a permit i'm going to presume there's going to be some sort of breaks put on this so that it's not an instant flood of the market. 
Sure. John, and uh, we're going to get to John Hume. Um, he's going to have a mixed herd. He's going to have really young animals, and he's going to have more mature animals. And cows that have got um, calves that are really feeding and need the support of their moms. So you're looking at 1.5 growth rate of horns. And, of course, like any mammal, you need to drink milk. (laughs) Sounds weird, but... You need to kind of keep it going. So for him, he needs to figure out where his cutoff line is. Where does he um, say, okay, this is harvestable. What's the harvest rate for John Hume? That's the tricky dicky bit. Once he's he sold go, his cash. Yes. So or he's got to go. Or to parse out the cash to meet the supply, which is the growth rate of a rhino from birth to enough horn to cut off. Exactly. So John's got to figure that out, and no doubt he has got the the formula worked out. And the rest of us are kind of going, okay, that's cool. We also know that rhino in um, high-density environments do pick up diseases uh, and other things. So that's an aside. As in, in other a, words, you're talking about has he included mortality rates? Yes, that that would be the question. And he's hit, been hit with that before. I think um, in the last, if I remember correctly, in the last 36 months, he's realized that, whoops, uh, rhino can suffer from this and this and this. So industrial style farming may be um, appropriate, but you've got to factor in all the things that come with it. So it's like salmon farming and all of those things that, yes, you can do it, but um, it's not going to give you your gross versus net answer and I think that's his thing he's kind of like looking at I've got this herd of rhino and that herd is worth this and if I remember correctly he had a a figure of like 1.14 billion or something Um, flooding the market with 1.14 billion dollars of rhino horns probably not going to work for China, the the mass market. I wouldn't think uh, so, so because that's banking on a really short term commodity. Exactly. So he has to then reinvest in sustaining a, a bit more of a a mid term life cycle with his animals, with his herd. So how long, how long does it take? to grow okay I from what I understand you need to leave about 15 centimeters of horn on the animal so how yes. long does it take to get enough horn beyond that to grow for a rhino to grow enough horn to cut off to feed this supply once 
the cash supply starts equalizing into the market? Well, he's looking at 12 to 24 months. Okay. It's a turnaround figure, yeah. So um, we all know, and I'm going to stick my neck out and people are going to shoot me down for saying it, but um, the International Bank Vault Scheme in Johannesburg uh, and um, Santon and Rosebank is holding the bulk of the excess rhino horn that we have in South Africa. And how trustworthy are the people who guard this and have the keys to the gold, so to speak? Yeah, you probably get shot several times before getting in. It's one of those. Um, uh, so the security is there, but you know, right now this is putting a lot of pressure on the people who hold the keys to this kingdom. Yeah. So, so, is it? Would it be an easily bribable thing to just? Well, that I can't be sure of. Or what I can be sure of is that, with the legal position that the Constitutional Court has applied, um, domestic trade is not possible, and everybody's going, "Whoa, wait a minute." I didn't have a huge cache of rhino horn. I had a couple, and now they're in the game. So you're talking about Mr. Pete Boerter in um, northeastern Free State going, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I actually have some rhino horn in my vault, and now I'm able to trade them. Because the new law said, regulation said that I can. So will this equalize the value of rhino horns so that it it doesn't fluctuate? Is that the hope? I think the hope is, ultimately, the Department of Environmental Affairs with Edna Molewa and her supporting... MECs in different provinces, they need the cash. They need to clear out the state-owned caches of rhino horn in order to make other cash that will clear their books and make conservation work. That that does make a certain amount of logical sense. I get that from a purely economic governmental budget perspective. I do get that. It's unfortunate that it's on a species that's under so much pressure. So this leads me to the question of the private reserves, the private vaults, the private caches, and then we're talking about setting a value, setting parameters and limits of what can go, how much, when, over what period of time, and then the taxes so that the breeders who are into trade can figure out their budget and timeline. So how much of this taxation is going to affect these private breeders, and will that affect their ability to maintain doing business as usual? 
I think the private breeders know that they have to contribute and the, I suppose, tax, if you want to call it, most private breeders, and let's actually take that nasty word out, breeding, let's say a reserve that has both black and white rhino in it, fully functional and breeding normally. Those reserves will kind of go, shit, excuse the language, we need to sustain these populations because they bring us photographic safari income and that income is what we're about as businesses. So in a way, having black and white rhino and various reserves across South Africa is not so much about defying the norms of, um, let's call it rhino breeding, but actually having stable rhino populations. So they need those populations in place and they want them in place because their photographic safari clients want them in place, which is different to having hunting safari clients who want to blat a black or white rhino for hunting purposes. So the photographic safari guys are paying the premium. They need the extra security in place to look after having a white or black rhino on their reserves. So it's putting a lot more pressure on the smaller reserves, people like Lorinda Hearn who have five or six rhino for photographic exactly. safaris. Intact exactly. rhino. Exactly. Lorinda is under immense... Lorinda and Ed, her father, are under immense pressure to protect those rhinos because they're not hunting people. They're trying to keep them there for, for, for photographic purposes and they have to face the same costs that a hunting person would have. And Lorinda is trying to kind of keep it going in that reduced financial sense. So let's say all this somehow kind of works out and um, ends up in some sort of a balance. Will the breeders of large herds share the wealth and the costs of doing not only their business, but help the smaller breeders keep up with the costs, face these costs? Oh, yeah, that's uh, the tricky, tricky question. Because that's really more about conservation of the species as a whole versus just farming for sale. Honestly. Honest answer, the small guys will trumpet and champion the species versus the big guys. Sounds terrible, but that's my view. But that's already happening. I don't yeah. I don't know that that, much is, is, that will change much. I mean, the big guys have already pretty much stated there's a video of John Hume and uh, 
his breed, you know, pro pro trade, and um, that had said, you know, if they can't trade it, then there's no point in breeding rhino, which kind of translates to saying they're not interested in the conservation of the species in the wild. Yeah, but John Hume, for all his um, perspective, let's say, his view is not the end of the conversation. True. Many of us, many of us know where Rana come from, particularly me, and not to sound arrogant, my family from the 50s and 60s. We know where the Rana question comes from. Uh, John is only one individual with a very specific view and sure he's got a load of animals to back it up but we're not going to allow that to be the end view I think which is possibly what you're really asking uh, Ellie is the end view about those commercial um, breeders determining the fate What's of Rhino. For, yes. What is good for Lorinda, Ashwell, and others. Wow. Well, this is interesting. So we're at a point now we can take a little break. So stick with us. We've got some uh, more interesting conversation coming up. And we'll be right back with my guest, Ashwell Glasson. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live The leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World We want to hear from you Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788 That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and we're talking the bombshell announcement of South Africa opening up rhino horn trade. So if you've been with us, we've been talking about what this means for the various players within South Africa. And then we ended the last section on what it means for rhino and where they come from historically, you know, in the wild. So Ashwell, let's get into how does rhino, the presence of rhino, both species, benefit other places across Africa? Well, absolutely. The one thing about rhino, let's stay away from their horn for a second. Rhino, in their own, particularly square-lipped or white rhino, have amazing benefits to grassland and open wood savanna. So when they were introduced back into Botswana, changes to the biomes and the delta itself was marked. They changed how the ecosystem functions for the better. And I think Derek and Beverly Jobert and others can attest to that. I can't speak for them, but I certainly will say they saw the value of it in the moment. Colin Bell who helped arrange the reintroduction of white rhino saw the value of having the big four going to the big five. And if we take a step back, Africa has always been about the big five. It's always about being the presence of all of those animals in an ecosystem that is functioning coping and moving forward let's just reiterate the the big five elephant rhino buffalo lion and leopard leopard okay yep yeah that's exactly it that's the thing what we've learned from africa is that there is a formula and it's a beautiful formula where all of those elements interplay for the benefit of a broader ecosystem. So even when we talk about Khoisan um, or other communities in the north of Botswana on the edge, most of them interact with a range of animals, and those animals include all of those five. The big five is not just um, the tick list for a bunch of duck. I don't want the American hunters to crucify me and I dare them in a way, come with me and I'll show them what the Big Five is like. But the Big Five is not just about the most dangerous animals. They're wild dogs and hippos and crocodiles and other things. Well, it's a a functioning ecosystem and whether you want to look at it from the little five up to the Big Five or the Big Five down to the little five, without each player within the ecosystem doing its part, playing its role, then 
we have we don't have a functioning ecosystem. Something starts to cascade and fall off. Exactly, and you feel it spot on. That's what we're trying to deal with is the broader reality of all of those things. And so, when we look at all of it, we look at those components. And that's why for us as South Africans, black and white rhino become so important because we realize they're under assault. When we see our East African colleagues dealing with elephant, we kind of go, oh my goodness, our brothers and sisters are fighting off an assault on on ivory for piano keys and oh for billiard a, balls pool table billiard balls exactly thank you or really hairpins or the backs of hairbrushes yeah. or guitar tuning yeah. pins we look at that and we all kind of go oh my goodness that is awful well the decimation of a species for these things that we create a market for it's all about us so that leads me to a point that we're dancing around here when we talk about wildlife and we talk about the illegal trade but even when we talk about wildlife conservation we still use a language of commodity we talk about value so yes how do we get back to redefining, refocusing in our world version update of Conservation 2.0? And this is a lot of what you and I are going to talk about further coming along. How do we reinvigorate this aesthetic and this understanding? And especially here in the West, you know, we're disconnected from the real animal the living animal in our backyard and how do we reconnect this and and disconnect this commodity value language to the living animals in their landscape well a lot of it's about economic determinism I think most hunters game rangers and others try and say well I do what I do because there's a certain economic or financial value and we're still fighting that, that value statement to say, well, a lion is worth this, a hyena is worth that, a um, buffalo is worth this and if it happens to be a trophy buffalo with a set of horns with a width like that, it's worth this. So we are up against that kind of problem. So how do we bring the value back to the living being that, you know, only because what we're talking about is some things have value and then some things don't. So on the illegal market, everything is traded from a pangolin because of its scales or a scorpion because of its value in the pet trade or collection trade, or orchids because, or even bird eggs because people want to collect these. The value ends there and becomes only a paper value and completely disregards the ecosystem value once it's minus 
these species. The value of the entire ecosystem has been diminished. Absolutely. The, the trick of it is that we're not ready yet. We're not ready to value an ecosystem. But what we may be ready to do is understand the value of an animal of a moment that we spend with that animal. And I'd like to use an example. When I worked at Pinda with and beyond, there was nothing like stalking, tracking, and just sitting with a white rhino bull at a distance, not the kind of distance that would cause the bull to turn around and attack you, but just to sit there and experience his inestimable and unknown value. And that's a trick. We have to learn, maybe or possibly, that we can't always quantify the full value. We can't always get to, this is what it's worth. We may have to learn that it's worth more than we can see or feel or appreciate. I agree with and that 100%. So who is the we we're talking about? Who are the, who are the minds we have to reach? I don't think it's the local communities. Yes, there's been a gap in terms of their interaction through everything we talked about in our last episode, you know, the colonial Mm. imposition of, you know, putting value on things and removing indigenous from their landscapes and bringing them back as the labor force or, you know, and then the misuse Mm. of community-based conservation without really partnering and adding in the value of the indigenous language of living with it within this landscape for eons before the the colonial model stepped in and placed a monetary value you alluded to it with the quaison bushman so do you think it's the western mindset that has put a price on everything that's who we have to reach the trophy uh, hunter look, who's taken a magnificent animal out of the gene pool and the 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 breeder who's reduced these animals to nothing more than a part of its body whether it be a lion for its bones or a rhino for its horn or a bear for its gallbladder who do we need to reach how do we go about it i think you've partially answered it um, yes, to answer the latter thing, the latter part of the question. We do reduce things to units, and I say this from a Western perspective, and it's easy to do it when it's effortless, when you have a firearm that provides you with an effortless moment. You can squeeze a trigger or float around, and it drops the animal. It's no different to how we receive our red meat as a Burger King or McDonald's or whatever in South Africa and other places. It's effortless. But that's kind of hidden from us. Those industrialized processes of beef 
and chicken and pig farming and that's kind of been removed from our eyes and put behind the curtain it's effortless sure. to go to the store and pick up a plastic sealed piece of red meat but then when you see the conditions of the food lots and the industrialized farming of the way these animals are kept that changes people's minds absolutely and we are in a place in South Africa in which our wild animals are in that position that's kind of my point I'm making with all of not just rhino and all of that I mean I'll admit it now I've eaten rhino bulltong because a older male rhino was shot to provide an economic or financial gap for a reserve and I sat and watched the rhino bulltong dry in a tree and I ate it later uh, willingly as a young 20-something year old so the 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 trick with the industrialized farming bit is that more and more of indigenous game is now shifting into that domain that's the question do we allow ostrich springbok uh, kudu I mean we do understand that meat eating isn't going to go away anytime soon and sure. not all people across the breadth and span of the planet can survive without eating meat the quaison who live much more I'll use the word harmoniously but in keeping with their resources it's not over harvested it's some is left alive so most native cultures as we talked about before and that we're going to talk about some more have a completely different respect and value system for the resources the planet around them so this industrialized Absolutely. move has has shifted that yes and um, Ellie our problem is the rhino horn question has become industrialized right it's about um, having horn available for processing and industrialization at a rate that can sustain the demand and where I kind of counter that my view is that that demand has not been quantified no matter what the uh, economists say, they've not yet been able to go, yes, this is the mind and we're building a model around that. I keep on going, no, 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 boys and girls, you're asking for rhino horn, whether it's wild or harvested industrially is actually nonsensical because you don't know what the market actually wants and at what volume it wants it at. And perhaps with the legalization of trade, and this is one of the arguments, it increases that demand because now it's, it's available. Exactly. 
No, so, exactly. Um, uh, I, and that's why what Lorinda and many others are doing to try and um, devalue horn through various mechanisms is actually what is required because we need to break up that um, horn supply chain. Because so the compartmentalization been, of commodifying bits of animals. Exactly. Because they want horn in a certain way, in a certain shape, a certain size, and a certain look. And the rest of us are going, no, no, wait a minute, hang on. No, Lorinda's going to go, no, I'm going to put in a dye that will make it hugely distasteful for you if you ingest it. Or if and not, somebody not, else, or toxic. Exactly. Truly and that's toxic. what we need. Yeah, that's exactly what we need. We need a disruptor, a set of disruptors that breaks up the market. And no market is truly linear. Even um, uh, the chap that started Apple realized that. He broke up the market. And he understood that the needs had to be met in different ways. And we're in the same position, except a computer is not a rhino. But to and make those computers, most of the components are found in areas rich with wildlife. The minerals, the other exploitative resources that we dig out of the earth. That sure. these animals are dependent upon. Gorillas and coltan. Sure, but wow. you and I and others look at a gorilla and go, a gorilla is worth maybe that and more and something else that we can't see or feel yet we know it's worth more beyond the sum of its parts and that's the trick with wildlife everybody keeps on saying that this is what it's worth and I keep on saying no, no, no. wildlife is worth, worth more than the sum of its parts and that's the thing. Lorinda, Lorraine, and others have figured that out. They know that it's beyond that. I think a lot of us have figured it out, and the sticky wicket we're up against at this point in our human paradigm is to expand that and come back to our roots, so to speak, to understand that it's not all about us, that there is inherent value that earth holds that doesn't include us in our needs but even in that equation if we want to survive on a planet then we need a healthy planet and that's what i call the benchmark of health and wealth absolutely so unfortunately today we're out of time but i look forward to continuing this conversation so stick with us and we'll be back with ashwell talking uh in a couple of weeks about the community side of conservation and exactly what we addressed here reinvigorating and igniting this passion for the overall well-being of our planet so thank you ashwell for your time thank you elise 
Damn, it's gone so quickly. I know. Uh, the, gonna, the time moves so fast. So It um, does, really. It does. and uh, But unfortunately, we're out of time. So this is Ellie Weiss, my guest, Ashwell Glasson, and you're listening to Our Wild World. And hopefully, we've given you something to think about today. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.